If you haven't gotten your Bibles yet, if you would grab your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 2 this morning. 1 John chapter 2. And we're in a series that we've been in for some time that we've entitled Living in the Light. And this uh, series out of the book of 1 John is focused in on living a life that pleases God. It's living a life that represents Christ and His kingdom work in our lives. It is the life that brings greatest contentment and greatest hope and joy for us as believers. Now, in the first eight weeks of this series, we focused in on the idea of maintaining fellowship with our Lord and the importance of fellowship in the life of the believer and some of the key criteria that come if we desire to live in the light of Christ's fellowship. A couple weeks ago, then we moved to the idea of uh, living in the truth and maintaining truth in our life. The idea of doctrinal truth, the idea of, of making sure that what we believe about Christ directly impacts the way that we walk. John's wanting to tell us throughout this series that we need to have our walk matching our talk. In the first century when he was living, there were a lot of people who spoke a good about a good relationship with Jesus Christ, but their lives did not live up to the hype uh, that they had uh, articulated. Uh, kind of like uh, what we see in some of the college basketball games that are going on. These teams that are ranked uh, number one being upset by uh, unknown teams. Uh, a lot of times there's a lot of hype behind uh, great teams and they're not able to live up to that. We as believers, John says, must live up to the hype that we have articulated. And so in uh, our text this morning, in verses 28 and 29, John is going to give us a transitional thought. He's going to stop by talking not about maintaining fellowship or, or maintaining truth in the life of the believer, but what he's going to do before he embarks on the subject of God's love is he's going to talk about the motivation on why we should maintain fellowship, the motivation on why we should maintain the right beliefs. And he's going to articulate that in these two transitional verses at the end uh, of this great chapter, chapter 2 of 1 John. So once again, I'm going to have you stand as we do for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to look at verses 26 to the end of the chapter. So let's go ahead and look at that passage. It says in verse 26, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you need, you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as this anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for uh, all that you've done. Lord, we thank you for saving us. We'll learn next week about the great love that went into our salvation, the love that you've lavished upon us. Lord, you are holy and you are worthy. We've sung about that today. And yet you saw fit through your eyes of grace and mercy to save a people unto yourself. 
And we're thankful for that. But Father, we also recognize that our salvation uh, that is in the past has ongoing uh, ramifications. Father, you've called us to live in you. Our text this morning says to continue in you. Father, we need your spirit, the anointing of your spirit to come into our lives, to be able to impact us so that we then can be reminded of what you've saved us from. That we would be reminded that it's not a once uh, confession that has no implications, but that it's ongoing. That if we say we are followers of you, that we will live in the light, we will live in your truth. Lord, we do this because we know you're coming back. We know that you are going to come and you are going to judge both the saint and the sinner. We recognize that and know not because of your grace and mercy that you do this, but because of your holiness and because of your justice, you will judge all of us one day. And so, Lord, our motivation then is to be ready for your coming is to be confident at your coming. It is to not shrink away and be ashamed at your coming, but to live such lives that when you come, we will be ready and we'll be waiting for the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as a result of that preparation, we would bring glory and honor to your holy and precious name. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we just finished uh, another two weeks of the Olympics. Not too long ago, in the month of February, all of the world's eyes looked to Vancouver, British Columbia, to watch the best of the best uh, arrive there. And through all the pomp and circumstance of the opening ceremonies, all the television and news uh, cameras and magazine articles that are written, to talk about this amazing event that we call the Olympics. And of course, the Olympics is uh, the time where we learn who is the best in each of these sports. For all of their lives, Olympians who have strived to find a day where they would be a part of the games, have prepared day and night to be a part of that event. Their lives, they've given up social events, they've given up friends and family, they've given up all other goals in life to focus in on one moment in time. Now, I thought for a long time, as, as many probably do, that, uh, you know, the Olympi- Olympic athlete does very little preparation other than the four years running up to the uh, Olympics. But that's untrue. If you ever listen to Bob Costas or any of the news uh, casters and sports uh, uh, announcers, they'll talk about the preparation that goes in. That many of these athletes started when they were three or four years old. That there was something that their mom and dad or a, or a coach or someone saw in them that they saw as greatness. And so they would begin at a young age, beginning to prepare them. I read an article in the uh, USA Today that talked about the preparation process of the Olympic athletes. And I thought what it would be focused in on, if, if, if you were a figure skater, would all be about, uh, of course, the stamina, physical stamina to uh, do the event, uh, the ability to skate as they need to, to work on jumps and all that. But I learned that if you have any kind of aspiration or real chance of making the Olympics, what will happen is, at a very young age, you will be given a counselor and an advisor who walks you through what it means to be a part of the Games. 
What they've learned in the last couple Olympics is that these, especially these young people ha- do not have the proper preparation to live up to the kind of scrutiny, the kind of evaluation, the kind of pressure that the Olympic Games bring. And so what happens is, is about four years before uh, the Olympics even begin. So right now, there are Olympic athletes who are preparing for four years from now, and they're dealing with counselors who will help them with the psychological understanding of all the issues surrounding it. They'll work with a life coach who will tell them uh, how to be disciplined and prepared. Uh, There'll be those that will uh, be taught what it means to win and to lose, because many of these people that think that they're going to come in and win and find themselves losing, uh, go into, there's a high level among Olympic athletes of depression because they're unprepared for the kind of stress and uh, uh, sadness that comes with, of course, the Olympics. And then, of course, we don't see any of that. The only thing that we see, of course, is them doing their sport. Them living out all these years of preparation for the one moment that they get into the arena, the one moment they find themselves on the ski slope, the one moment they find themselves on the ice rink. And in that moment, at that time, all the preparation will either have prepared them for what they need to do, and in that they will be confident as they enter that arena, or they will find themselves ashamed because they weren't as ready as they thought they were. There's nothing worse than watching uh, the Olympics and watching someone who isn't ready. I remember watching with my wife. I, I wouldn't watch it if Amanda wasn't watching it, but the figure skating, she loves that, that sport, and uh, it teaches me how to be sensitive to, uh, to my wife's needs, and she enjoys watching that. And we were watching a young girl 14 years of age from a small former Soviet Union country. And 14 years old, man, she was really struggling. And they said, oh, she's new, she's young, and she'll be back. But I'll tell you something. There was part of me that my heart just went out for her because she was totally unprepared for what she had to face. And as a result of that, there was a sense when she got done, her head dropped, and she just wanted to go find a hole in the ground because she was ashamed of what she had done. She had fallen a couple times, and and things were all off kilter. Now you say, that's, that's sad. After all that preparation to not be prepared, let me tell you something that's sadder, something that is more grievous, and that is when a Christian is not prepared for the greatest day that is left to come. John tells us that Jesus is coming back. And the reason why John tells us this is not so that we will understand theology, but that we will be motivated to be prepared. That we'll be motivated in the days and weeks and maybe years to come that we would understand and recognize there's a day that is coming. And that day is coming for all of us where we will stand before Jesus Christ. And what John is telling us is the reason why you live in the light, the reason why you live in righteousness, the reason why you walk as Jesus did was because there's a day that will come where Jesus will judge the hearts of you and I. And in that day, we will have two responses. One, if we're prepared, we'll be one that is confident, that will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. There will be others who will stand before Jesus Christ unprepared, and they will hear, uh, person of iniquity, depart from me. John wants us to recognize that we must be prepared for his coming. 
Well, how does he do it? He reminds us of a couple of things. First of all, in your outlines this morning, he reminds us of the personal coming of Jesus Christ. The personal coming of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 28 what our text tells us. It says, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. There are two phrases in our text today that remind us that Jesus is coming back. Notice what John says in the text. In verse 28, he says that when he appears, and then he says at his coming. Two times in one verse, he articulates to us that Jesus Christ is coming back. John is reminding us in this week of Easter that Jesus, just as he came to Bethlehem as a baby, will one day come through the clouds to return to earth and to take us to be with him in heaven. John is by no means the first to speak about this coming day, that Christ would one day personally return to earth. In fact, the second coming of Jesus Christ is mentioned more than 310 times in the New Testament alone. In fact, all of the New Testament uh, books of the Bible speak of his return except for four. The book of Galatians, which deals with a specific doctrinal issue. Second and third John, and the book of Philemon. Of course, second and third John are very short letters, and Philemon's a letter between Paul and another believer. And so of all the other passages of Scripture, 310 plus times... This issue is dealt with. But what does the scripture say about the coming of Jesus Christ? Let's turn in our Bibles and understand a little bit about what this coming will look like. Turn in your Bibles to Mark 13 for a moment. Mark 13. Second book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. Tells us the following about the coming of Jesus Christ. Mark 13, we'll start in verse uh, 32. And we'll go through 37. Notice what Jesus says about this. He says, No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So what are we to do? We don't know the time of His coming. And Jesus tells us, Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge each with an assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch." The difference between the Olympic athlete and the Christian is is we can set our clock that four years from now, barring any kind of massive issue within the world, there will be another Olympics. There will be another time where the athletes will gather together. And so there's a time where that athlete looks and says, I must be ready in four years. The problem is, is for Christians, we don't know when that time will come. We don't know when that time will be. Now, Jesus gives us, and and the Bible gives us uh, different uh, passages of Scripture that address what the seasons will look like, what the last days will look like. 
But even Jesus says, I don't even have that knowledge because I've willfully given that over uh, to the Father. And so only the Father knows when that time will come. And so Jesus says, be ready. Be ready for this coming. Notice the second thing that we see within it. Turn to in your Bibles, a book over to the book of Luke. Jesus articulates in Luke 21 some truths that we need to understand. Luke 21, verses 25 through 28. What will the time look like around his coming? And how will his coming uh, be brought about? This is what Jesus says again. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. The time of Jesus will be a time of his coming will be a time of tumultuous activities. A time of great turmoil, a time of great struggle for us as human beings. And we recognize that in our world today. The world isn't any easier to live in. The world isn't getting easier to make a life. It's getting more difficult. The work of Christ is becoming more difficult to do as a result of persecution and uh, opposition from the devil and his forces. And we recognize that Christ is going to come, not uh, sitting, as we celebrate today on Palm Sunday, on a colt of a donkey. But he will come, the scripture says in the book of Revelation, riding a white horse with a sword. And he will not come meek and mild and uh, love and show affection to the people of this world, for that season will be gone. But he will come as a reigning king and general who will deal with the world and their sin. But notice, we can get upset about these things. Turn in your Bibles one book over again to the book of John. We can get worried about these things. We can become concerned about these things and, 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 and start to look to the circumstances surrounding Christ's coming and say, you know, what about me? What about uh, my life as a believer? And I love what Jesus shares in John 14. One of the last words that Jesus will share in his upper room um, conversation on that night that Jesus was going to be betrayed. And this is what Jesus says, a very famous passage of Scripture in John 14. He says this to us, as well as to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also uh, be where I am. You know the place, way to the place where I am going. Now Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. What Jesus is articulating is, you want to be able to stand confidently? You want to be able to have your hearts not be troubled? Then trust in Jesus Christ. Don't let your hearts be troubled. 
This day will come, the coming of Jesus Christ, will be a day where many will be ashamed, where many will be frightened, but it will also be a day where we will see our salvation, our redemption, come to full fruition. Jesus says, trust in me. So what are we trying to understand from this text that uh, John wants us to know? Is it for us to understand the doctrinal understanding of the second coming of Jesus Christ, what, what we as pastors call eschatology, the, the things of the last days? Is that what he wants to get across by articulating that Christ is coming back, that we would become uh, better uh, in our knowledge of theology? That's, that's not why he's articulating it. But what he's articulating is what our response will be in light of that coming. It's kind of like when you uh, answer the phone and uh, someone in your family says, hey, we're coming into town uh, unexpectedly. And what usually will happen as you hang up the phone is you'll start cleaning up the house. You'll be getting things in order knowing that there is a guest coming. The reason why is we don't want to be ashamed when our visitors come and, and see all the mess that we have in our house. We want everything to be in its place. Just like that, John is telling us as Christians... There's a guest coming. His name is Jesus, and you need to be ready. Sadly, in our churches today, though, we don't find many who are ready. In fact, there are different responses that come, and I want to look at them very quickly this morning. There are three responses that can come from the articulation of Christ's coming in the future. Two are bad, and one is positive. The first one is, is as we look at the personal coming of Jesus Christ, we as believers can get a sense of relief. There's this sense of relief. There are some of us, even in this place, who view our understanding of the second coming as Jesus Christ as some sort of escape clause from having to face the harsh realities of life. Let me explain. There are those, even within their own spirits, who will articulate Who really cares if ungodliness and immorality are prevalent in our culture? Who cares that the world is going to hell? Who cares that within the culture today we see all kinds of injustice, all kinds of terrible things happening in the world? Who really is concerned about those things? Should I be concerned that there are millions of men and women and children suffering all over the world because of disaster and turmoil, persecution and pain? I mean, really, let's think about it, because you know what? At some point, Jesus said this was going to happen, and and, and I'm going to be gone soon. Just as these continue to foment and become bigger and bigger, uh, at one point, at a moment in time in the future, I don't have to worry about those things, because I'll be gone. And we get this idea that, so sad for you, but good for me, that I'm a believer, and, and I'm on the elevator heading up. There's this sense of relief. Thank goodness for the hardships, because I really don't have to worry about them, because I'll be leaving before the ship, uh, be leaving on the ship before things really get too bad. I know God's word. I know what it promises me, and that means Jesus soon will return, and that means this world isn't all that important, but what is to come is. This idea of escapism is a cancer to our churches. The reason why is because we lose the mandate of what Christ has called us to be active and busy until his coming. We should not be rejoicing, or we should not be uh, lax in our understanding of where uh, we need to be as a church. We need, need not be lax and unfaithful in the mission for the souls of men, thinking, well, I've got my escape route. 
I won't worry about my neighbors and friends. It can't be an issue of relief. Notice the second thing. It can't be an issue of rejoicing. You may not have a sense of relief, but there may be a deep sense of rejoicing in your heart. Jesus Christ is coming. So let me explain that because we should have a sense of joy that our, our God in heaven will not leave us. But surrounding this doctrine, there are many believers who have a morbid joy about the worsening conditions in our world. I got recently, uh, in fact, just a, a week ago after Washington passed the health care, I, I got a, from a friend that I've known for some time. He, he said, uh, uh, health care today, Jesus Christ coming back tomorrow. Well, I'm done with this life. Let's move on to the next chapter. Praise God. And I was like, it was a text that I had received. And, and I, I texted him back, I don't think health care equals the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, you may disagree with me from a political standpoint, and I'm not going to get into that, but from a biblical one, I can assure you, and I want you to understand this, Christ did not fall off his throne when the last vote was voted in Congress. He didn't fall off. He said, you know what? This doesn't change anything. This doesn't change the time of my coming. But there are some of us who say, let things get worse, because the more they get worse, the more difficult they become, then our Savior is going to come back. Now, we should have a desire to be one with God in heaven, but we should not desire to see the world fall apart in its time of tribulation and pain that is coming. And so we shouldn't say, well, it's good that we see a lot of earthquakes happening, a lot of rumors of wars and wars abounding. We look at the chaos around us and we say, this is good because these are all signs that the time is coming. But what we should do is not look at them with rejoicing, but with the understanding that with every day shows the patience of God. And Peter says that the patience of God provides for salvation. Again, we can't worry about who we are and that we are going to be out of here. But in light of his coming, our reaction should be, how can I serve the world around me? Not rejoice that I've got my ticket on the train but that others around me will hear of the good news of Jesus Christ. That leads us to the final one, and that is a reaction of responsibility. This is where we need to find our place as believers. I want you to turn in your Bibles just a book over from 1 John uh, to the book of uh, 2 Peter. 2 Peter gives us how we are to live in light of his coming, not to be relieved by it or to rejoice in our individual um, uh, things that come for us, but notice what, what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And this is what our heart needs to be. This is what Peter says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. We're not going to know when it's going to come. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? What a great question, Peter asks. Notice what he says. You ought to live holy and godly lives. That's your responsibility. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And no, notice what he says. So then... In light of, some translations say, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. 
Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear Paul also wrote about to you when he spoke of the wisdom that God gave him. He writes in the same way in all his letters, speaking to them in these about these matters. His letters, and he goes on to contain uh, some of the things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. So therefore, he says, dear children, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the air of the lawless one and fall from your secure position. What is he articulating here? We have a responsibility. As we look to the coming of Jesus Christ, our job is to be responsible Christians. Then you say, that sounds kind of canned. It is a bit canned. Because responsibility as Christians is to be salt and light. As we see the day approaching, as we see uh, the things around us look as if they are being recorded uh, from the scriptures, that we should be ready, not just as individuals, but that all around us are ready to receive the coming of Christ, to proclaim the good news. Time is short. We need to be active and at work. So what does that involve? It involves the one who understands what is at stake. That in these last days, it is the ones who have a responsibility as believers that we are the ones who are heartbroken over our world. I know that many of you, I was at a family gathering yesterday, and I've got to be honest with you, it was a Christian family. Uh, most of my family are Christians. And I struggled a bit because there was this sense of woe is us. Woe is us of what the world's, what's going on in the world. And my response was, instead of talking about how bad things are, to recognize that God is at work, to also recognize that the devil is doing everything he can to stop the kingdom of God and that our job should be first and foremost to live upright and holy lives, to be at peace, and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ because time is short. You know, we don't understand that. We forget that. We look in the temporary things of this world and we forget that Christ is coming and we have a job to be ready. Are you ready for his coming? Notice the second thing that we have this morning. The second thing that we see is not just the personal coming of Jesus Christ, but that there is a present choice that we must make. Notice back in 1 John chapter 2 that in the text we see there's now a second thing that it involves. He says uh, here, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. His coming puts a, uh, if you will, a bookend uh, to this life. And he says, all right, children, if that is the final thing, then there's a choice that we must make. Because at his coming, two types of people will be made known or will be made evident. Those who are confident at his coming and those who are ashamed. Another translation says those who will shrink back. And within that, we see that there are two responses to the coming of Jesus Christ. And it produces a distinction. Those who are prepared and those who are not. And so what are we to make of this? What John wants to tell us is that we as people have, especially as Christians, have a decision that we need to make. Are we going to live in light of the coming of Jesus Christ and live differently... In fact, in 1 John 3, 3, notice what the text says. When we have this hope, we will purify ourselves. We will live differently. In verse 29, it says that we will live righteous lives as he is righteous. 
And so a decision has to be made. Will we go the way of the world or will we go the way of Christ in light of his coming? We know that at the coming of Jesus Christ, there will be judgments. The judgments for at the great white throne for all those who have rebelled against Jesus Christ. And the issue of that judgment will be uh, their salvation. Were their names written in the Lamb's book of life or not? The scripture doesn't say that it will be a long judgment, but that it will be short. In the fact that those who have not put their uh, name down in the Lamb's book of life by bowing the knee to Jesus Christ will be consigned for eternity to hell. Any name that not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Scripture's clear of that. And so we recognize that that will be the first thing of shame that will come. But the scripture also says that we as believers will also stand before a judgment. Not where our salvation is at stake, but our sanctification. That is talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where we will stand all as believers before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will give an account for what we have done for Christ while in this body. And so the question is, for us as believers, I want to separate us from unbelievers for a moment, that even as believers there will be a judgment where at the coming of Jesus Christ, we will be either confident at that judgment or we will stand and we will be ashamed. And so the question is, how do we make sure that we are confident and that we are unashamed at that coming? Well, to understand it, I want to look to this week in the life of the Christian church, this week of Easter. And I want to look at some of the ways that we can be ashamed at the coming of Jesus Christ because the first choice we can make is to live a life of compromise, to live a life of compromise that leads to desertion. Of course, 2,000 years ago, on this glorious day of Palm Sunday, all Jerusalem was excited and and was uh, triumphant in this coming king who was going to come. And of course, they lay down palm branches and they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It must have been an awesome time of celebration. I wonder what the disciples were thinking. After three years of ministry, uh, this Jesus now is going to go into Jerusalem. He is going to establish his kingdom and they will sit on thrones. Remember, that's what their thought was. And so here are all these people who are tired of Rome's occupation. And they're saying, here's our coming king. He's going to take care of us. He's going to deal with the needs uh, that perplex us most that we believe in our lives. And so what do they do? They sing praises to the Savior. But notice, as John said, five days later, many in that crowd will not be singing Hosanna, Hosanna, but will be yelling crucify. What happened? What changed? How could they go from worshiping God on one, worshiping Christ at one moment to be yelling crucify? Let's go to the disciples. These disciples, 12 of them, three years have seen Jesus do all sorts of things. They've seen Christ's holiness, his desire to do the will of the Father in heaven. They've seen him do miracles after miracles. Those that are blind and, and, blind and lame, those that have issues of illness, he has seen them healed by the touch of this man's hand. They've watched him take a little food and make it be multiplied to feed thousands of people at a time. These are the disciples closest to Jesus who said, Jesus, when your kingdom comes, we're there for you. 
If anybody tries to take you, we will fight for you. Jesus will do whatever, to the point that even Peter says, if everybody else denies you, Jesus, not I. Even these 11, other 11 may deny you, but I won't deny you. And we know that through the course of this week's activities, that they started to live lives of compromise. It starts in the garden. When Jesus says, hey, will you watch and pray? And Jesus goes farther into the, into the uh, garden and he comes back after a season of prayer and he finds them sleeping. They're more focused on their needs than the needs of, of praying and proclaiming Christ as their Lord and Savior, of seeking the will of God in heaven. And so what happens? Jesus is arrested. Judas lives the ultimate life of compromise and deserts and, and denies Jesus and betrays him. And then the soldiers come to take Jesus. And what happens to those 12? The 12 that said, Jesus, we're with you in good times, in bad. We will do whatever needs to be done to fulfill your kingdom. It says in Mark chapter 14, verse 50, that at the moment of the arrest, all his disciples deserted him. In fact, I like what Mark says. It says that there was a young, a young man who left his robe and ran off naked because someone tried to grab him, grabbed his robe, and he must not have been wearing much other stuff that day. And as a result, when he's running away to desert Jesus, he leaves all his garments and runs away naked. This man was more willing, and, and it's funny, most commentators say the reason why uh, the name isn't given, that it's Mark, It's Mark, the one that's writing this. There was a certain man who uh, ran around naked. He will remain nameless. He was more willing to to be shamed in his physical body than to be represented, be one who represented Jesus Christ. Life of compromise. What about Peter? Peter, even if all these will deny, where's Peter at? Jesus says that three times before uh, before the cock crows, that he would deny Jesus. And he does. Three times. Even to a young little peasant girl. Instead of identifying himself with Jesus, he lives a life of compromise. What is compromise? Compromise is stop, is, is the life that stops looking to the coming of Jesus Christ, that I am responsible for something, and, and looking and saying, you know what, who cares about the coming of Jesus Christ? Who cares about what Christ has called me to? I want to live for self. It's about me. If my popularity is at stake, I will deny Jesus as quickly as possible. If it may mean I'll lose a promotion, then I'm dropping Jesus as quickly as I can. If it means that I have to give up some things like the way I use my money, the way I raise my kids, the things that I watch or the things that I buy, then I'm getting rid of Jesus. That's a life of compromise. And this holy week of Easter reminds us of two things. The life of compromise that leads to desertion. There's a lot of deserting going on in that time of that week of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, there is very little to commend the people around Jesus on that week. The reason why I think that is is because it creates a distinction of the life of compromise that leads to desertion. And the following one, throw that up there, Tim. The life of courage that leads to devotion. So if we can't look to people as Christ uh, see, uh, is, is living out his life, to those closest to him, 
then we need to recognize that compromise can lead to our desertion. Notice what happens when Peter denies Jesus three times. After Jesus, or after Peter denied Jesus three times, I want to read a passage to you. Write this passage down in your outlines. Luke twenty-two sixty-two. Luke twenty-two sixty-two. This is what it says. It says, Peter uh, replied, I'll give verse 60, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. They were in the vicinity of one another. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord that had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And what is Peter's response? And he went outside and he whipped bitterly. How do, you think Jesus, how do you think Peter felt when Christ was re- resurrected? Do you think he sat there and said, I knew it. You and I, Jesus, we were on the same page. No, these other guys, they didn't understand that you were going to come back, but I did. No, it says he wept bitterly. Have you ever wept bitterly? The shame, the guilt of something you've done? There's been two seasons in my life where I have wept bitterly over my shame. What was I thinking? Why did I do those things? And the remorse. And we know that Jesus would come. And his job uh, after uh, his resurrection in John chapter 20, it tells us, was to restore that same Peter. And I'll get to that in a moment, this idea of restoration. But the second thing that we see is, then what is a life of courage that leads to devotion? Admits this holy week. We see a lot of compromise, but we see one who lived a life of courage. His name is Jesus. Jesus, this week, if you think of anything, think of these two things. We are compromisers. We are deserters. We are those that don't look to the eternal, but the temporal. And we look at Jesus. And Jesus is the exact opposite of us. Jesus never compromised because he was full of grace and truth. Jesus never gave up because he looked to the will of God, his Father in heaven. Jesus didn't worry about himself, but he said, not my will done, but Father, your will be done. And as a result of that, Jesus recognized that there was a day coming that if he glorified his Father, that his Father one day would glorify him. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Jesus did not look to the temporal because had he, he would have never left the garden. If he had thought about what it would mean to him for his sake and, and for his pleasure and for his issues of pain and suffering, he would have never been arrested. He would have changed his thoughts, he would have changed his words, and he would have denied his father just as we denied him. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus with the courage... That is found in the gifting of the Holy Spirit. The ability to stand strong in troubled times stands and he says, I'm devoted to the Father. And I don't look forward to this pain that is coming, but I look beyond it. Because there's a day that is coming where I will be glorified by my Father. There's a day coming where I will stand before the Father. And I will either stand in shame because I gave up in my humanity or a day where I will be exalted for what I've done. So Jesus chose the latter. He says, I'll endure the cross. Why? Because in redeeming mankind back to you, Father, 
you receive glory. And if it means I get a little pain, if it means I endure death, then so be it. And I will stand before that with courage and honor and dignity. I will not revile those who revile against me. I will not punch as those who punch me. I will not try to bring forth evil, but I will forgive even though they do not know what they are doing. I will love even those that beat me. That is Jesus. And Jesus shows us the courage. How does he do it? How does he do it? He remained in the Father. You say, I can't do that. I can't live that way. I want you to understand that you can. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews for a moment. The book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. After a chapter is given of Hebrews 11, of people like you and I, who looked forward to a day that was coming, not in the here and now, who lost everything they had, but looked forward to a city that was not yet to be found. They lived lives of faith. But notice what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. When you run a race, I want you to understand this. When we run a race, we don't run it for the step before us, but we look to the finish line. And we look and we say, we want to finish the race. We don't want to just run a couple steps and stop, but we want to finish it because that's the marking of the race that's set before us. How do we do it, my brothers? He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus. Why? Because he's the author and perfecter of our faith. How do we live uh, in spite of the compromise and desertion around us? How do we live courageous and devoted lives? By focusing in on Jesus. Because he's the one that started your faith. He's the one that will perfect your faith. How did he do it? Notice what the text says. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before us endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider this Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful men. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus is coming. It's a fact. The question is, are you ready or not? You know what most of us have done? We've grown weary and lost heart. I don't know if he's going to come. I don't know if his his promise is true. It's a hard life. My health is no good. People are attacking me all the time. The world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. I've lost heart. And what are we to look at? The one whose courage led to devotion, who endured such opposition, that we will not lose heart. How do we live that out? Point number three this morning. How do we live that out? We live it out by being reminded of the proper course of action to take. I want to finish with this. Notice what 1 John tells us again. It says, And now, dear children, continue in Him. There's the key. Continue in Him. And so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. I know... If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. There are three words that give us the course of action. Continue in him. Had Peter, had the crowd at Palm Sunday, had the disciples continued in Christ 
and followed his teaching and made him number one in their life, they would have never deserted Christ. They would have followed him. They would have done what they said they were going to do. They would have lived out the phrase, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But somewhere between that response and the cross, they gave up. They stopped continuing in him. This word or phrase continuing him is the Greek word meno, which means literally to abide or to remain. And that's what we need to understand. There's an abiding that is to be done. We are to remain in Christ. We are to stay close to Christ. And this involves three things very quickly this morning. Number one, it's not in your outline, so write this down just above the other two. We need to understand that this course involves warnings against wandering away. Write that down. Warnings against wandering away. The book of Hebrews articulates it this way. The book of Hebrews is warnings after walking away, after warning. But notice what it says. Write this passage down. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 39. So, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For just in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. There's a warning. Don't follow the ways of our brothers and sisters that week of Easter who shrank back who through compromise chose that which was temporal over Christ, who is eternal. We can fall to those things. That's why uh, it says that we should not fall in love with this world, the things that are passing away, for the things that will last forever. Number two, this involves walking as Jesus walked. In 1 John, if you're in 1 John, go back to chapter 2, verse 6. In fact, verse 5b. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. You want to be ready for Christ's coming? Then you live like Jesus. You talk like Jesus. You walk like Jesus. You act like Jesus. You forgive as Jesus forgave. You don't allow things that Jesus wouldn't say to come out of your mouth. You wouldn't allow the thoughts uh, and, and the thinking that Jesus wouldn't have in his mind be a part of our mind. You wouldn't be involved in the issues of the world, but you would set your heart, as Jesus did, on heavenly things. Turn again a page back, it may be two pages for you, to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. You want to know what it means to walk like Christ? Peter tells us. He says the following, For this very reason, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and perseverance to godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. There's our list. Let's start there. That's how we live like Christ. For if you possess these things, these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. 
Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You want to be able to be confident at the coming of Jesus Christ? You do what First Peter or Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says. Add to, the, to your life the qualities that are found in Christ Jesus. And you won't be ashamed. Finally, want what Jesus wants. You want to abide in Him? Then it means that we cannot love the world or anything in it. That if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but comes from the world. For the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. I want you to ask a question this morning. What are you living for? On this Palm Sunday, the day where everybody was celebrating Jesus, I want to ask you a question. Do you celebrate Jesus in the moment? for what it does for you? Or do you celebrate and live for Jesus in what it means in the future? The Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for His people. We do not live for this moment. We do not live for that which is passing away. But we live for something that God has prepared for us in the future. Are you living for the coming of Jesus Christ or are you living for today? If you are, then abide in Him. Continue in Him. When it gets tough, look to Jesus. Understand why Jesus did what He did. I love what John says and I'll close with this thought. You want to know what it means to abide? Learn His two words that He has at the beginning. And now, dear children, how do we abide? We act like a child who is dependent on their Father for everything that we need. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that this isn't a a popular message. No message is popular when we look away from ourselves and look away from the here and now to something that is in the future. And so, Lord, I recognize, even in my own heart, what a message like this does to me. Because I want to know, what what about me? What about my needs? What about my issues? Let's talk more about me. And yet, we see in the example of your Son, Jesus Christ, that it's all about you. It's all about you and your glory. It's all about you and us living our lives for you. We do this because we know that eternity is coming. And that, Lord, it may even be today that we will stand face to face with you. And, Lord, I pray that if this is my last hour, that I would be found doing your work. That I would be found busy for your kingdom, serving you and elevating you over all else. But, Lord, I know that that's not always where you find me. And so, Father, on behalf of these people, I confess to you my unwillingness to live for you in light of your coming. And so many times, like your disciples and the people that surrounded you in those last days, that I find myself living life of compromise. 
pursuing the lusts of my eyes and the cravings of my life instead of pursuing you, the greatest treasure that I can have. So Lord, I pray that you would give me the strength, that you would give these people the strength to abide, to continue in you, to walk as you did, to want the things that you want, and to allow the things of this earth to grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. That's our desire, Lord. And so we give it to you. So Lord, as we leave this place, we would leave living lives that know a day is coming. And we look to that day with joy. We look to that day with excitement, knowing that the days are evil and that our work is great, but knowing that one day you will wipe away every tear. One day you'll restore every sinning believer and you will raise us up in the heavenly realms with your son, Jesus Christ. To you be the glory till that day comes. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.